0: Good morning and turn your, with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Our text for this morning's sermon will be 1 through 14. What a delight it is to preach with the taste of the Lord's Supper still in my mouth to remind me as I preach of what Christ did for us. What a privilege it is to sit around the table together as a church family. Nehemiah chapter 6, 1 through 14 is our text. As you turn there, let me set the scene for you. As Christians living out our faith, we often find ourselves in tribulation for following Christ. Christ was killed, His body was broken, His blood was shed, and we as His followers sometimes get caught in such crossfire as well. We find ourselves to be the target of plots and schemes designed to negate our influence for Christ in the world that we live in. We find ourselves being the object of gossip and slander designed to mute our message. And our message is that Christ was crucified and resurrected. We face opposition for that. We have enemies. We have enemies from outside of the church. Sometimes, tragically, we have enemies from within the church who seek to promote themselves to our detriment and to the detriment of our message and our Christ. And we find ourselves in the midst of various trials and difficulties that were not of our own making. Let's be careful because sometimes we do cause our own problems. Sometimes we act wrong. But often because we stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. That's not wrong. And we find ourselves facing great, great opposition. That's where we find Nehemiah this morning. He's doing God's work. He's doing God's work in God's way and God's time around God's city with God's people. And he finds stiff, aggressive opposition. To the things that he is about. Join with me in Nehemiah 6. Let's read. I'm going to cut this text into two. First we're going to see some external opposition. And then secondly we'll see internal opposition. We'll work through some things from there. But let's first start in verse 1 and follow along with me. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall. And that there was no breach left in it. Although up to that time I had not set up doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, quote, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall." And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you also have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. Quote, there is a king in Judah. Close quote. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Let's pause right there. We'll get to the next paragraph in a moment. Let's just look into this external opposition that Nehemiah is facing as he frantically tries to lead the people of God to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. The enemy is identified in verse 1, and we've seen these names in previous chapters Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. They do not want the wall rebuilt around this city. They do not want Jerusalem fortified. They do not want God's people safe, nor do they want God's name exalted. And they look on the scene as they've been watching for weeks and a couple of months. And they see that the wall is finished. Back over in chapter 4, verse 6, we saw that the wall was to half its height. Well, from that point till now, it is to the full height. There's no breaches in the wall. And the city is already heavily, heavily fortified. But there's a sliver of hope for them yet, because doors have not been set into the gates. Maybe just sentinels are standing there guarding those ways, as that's the finishing touch to calling the wall complete. So the enemy here knows that this is their last chance to prevent the wall from being built. It's their last chance to breach the city without declaring war and raising an army. And so they get aggressive with Nehemiah. We see their aggression in three ways. Let's look at them real quickly. The first way is they request a summit meeting. Out in the plain of Ono. They say, come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. You come to us. Well, this would have been very dangerous for Nehemiah. It's a plain, wide open, exposed. It's about a day's journey northwest of Jerusalem, up near Samaria, up near Ashdod, where the enemy lives, Nehemiah had godly discernment in this moment to know that that was a dangerous exposure that he could not risk. He says in verse 2, they intended to do me harm. What kind of harm? Well, on the lowest level of harm, the distraction of the work. A day's journey out, maybe a day or two or three of meetings. A day's journey back, a week's gone. And this wall was rebuilt in 52 days. Five days of lost work is not insignificant. But worse than that, might they kidnap this leader of the Jews? If they kidnap the leader, the work will certainly cease. Or worse than that, might there be an assassination plot? We don't know, but Nehemiah knows that they intended to do him harm. And so Nehemiah refuses their invitation. He refuses it by saying, in verse 3, I am doing a great work. And I cannot come down, no, not going to me. This term great work, I I wish it would be translated a slightly different. How about this, important work. He's not boasting about the great work of art that he's doing. He's proclaiming the importance of this work. It is a greatly important work that God has given God's people to do. And so this is a great work and God's great work cannot go undone and it cannot be interrupted. I can't come down from the wall. Well, we see the second phase of their, persis- their, their aggression towards this wall being built. It's one of persistence in verse 4. He says, and they sent to me four times in this way. Four times they come and say, we need to meet, we need to talk, we need to have a summit. And he says, I answered them in the same manner four times over. They are desperate. They, at this point, will not take no for an answer. And so they come at him over and over again with the same appeal. And he says, I answered them the same way every time. You know, when we get faced with temptations over and over again, we tend to relax, don't we? Not Nehemiah. He didn't get stronger and he didn't get weaker. He was steadfast from the word go. And he continually says, I'm not coming down off of this wall. I'm doing a great work. Can't do it. So they resort to their third and most aggressive tactic. It's one of propaganda. We see it in verse 6 or starting in verse 5. They send a fifth messenger and look what they send him with. (laughs) An open letter. You've seen open letters, haven't you? In the newspaper, on the blogs. They've been read on our news channels. An open letter to such and such. I want the public to know what I'm saying to this person that I've got an issue with. He says he's got an open letter in his hand. So this is public knowledge now. Let's broadcast an issue of propaganda for all to see. And we will see in the text here that this open letter was full of false charges and accusations. Look with me in verse 6. Here's what this letter says. It is reported among the nations that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building this wall. So you're going to rebel. Geshem even says so. (laughs) As if he's the authority. They go on to say, and according to these reports, you wish to be their king. You're going to lead the people to rebel. That's why you're building a wall. And now you, Nehemiah, you wish to be their king. And so much so that in verse 7, you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, quote, there is a king in Judah. Happy days are here again. These are false charges. Nehemiah doesn't have such the audacity within him. We need to understand why these charges are the ones that were selected. What a huge threat to Nehemiah and his relationship with King Artaxerxes. They conclude the open letter false charges with, and now the king will hear of these reports. That king is Artaxerxes back in Persia. This is a tremendous threat to Nehemiah and ultimately to the people of Jerusalem because if Artaxerxes is stirred up, the strongest army in the world at that time, the Persian army, would bear down in Jerusalem and squash them like a bug. Remember, these people are living in times of famine. They are economically depressed. They are tired and weary. They've got swords in one hand and trowels in another. They're not numerous. There's a big threat here. His relationship with Artaxerxes is threatened. Remember, Nehemiah in chapter 1 is Artaxerxes' cupbearer. This is the highest esteemed office in the council, in the courts of the king. He was a trusted ally of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes granted him his request to return to Jerusalem to rebuild this wall on the condition that You would give me a time that you will return. And here's these charges. You intend to rebel. You intend to set yourself up as king. That's why you're building the wall, and that's why you've raised up so-called prophets to proclaim your kingship over these people. So the risk is huge, and the propaganda might be effective, or might it not be. What does Nehemiah do? Well, Nehemiah plays the man. Nehemiah plays a strong leader card in this moment of propaganda. Nehemiah responds with unwavering courage and conviction without apology. He makes a very simple denial. Look at what he says. He says, no such things. And I love this. You are inventing them out of your own mind. Simple, true, confident, not snarky. But this is not true and won't be accepted, and you're not going to faze me at all. You're inventing that out of your own mind. I'm ready to stand before anybody and declare that. He didn't mount a defense campaign and he didn't develop a countermeasure out of paranoia or insecurity. How many times are we tempted to do that? He wasn't incapacitated by the rumors. He wasn't driven to fearful, a fearful response for fear of what Artaxerxes might believe or might not believe about these lies. No, he instead demonstrates godly, rock-solid leadership without waver. Nehemiah, as we have been looking through these chapters, and as we look into the life of Ezra beforehand, Nehemiah shows us that leadership is a perilous calling. You think about it. Whatever role of leadership you find yourself in, there is controversy and conflict and attack and innuendo and propaganda. And appeals to distract you from the task that you've been given. There's not a leader one that is exempt from all of that. We all get it all the time in all circumstances. Nehemiah shows us how we are to stand in the face of such times. There's a good message here for pastors, it's a good message here for husbands. It's a tremendous message here for mothers. Leadership role that they are called to have in their families with their children. You see, if you look through the counsel of Scripture and if you look at the circumstances in life, God always leads His people, whether it's a church, whether it's a family, God always leads His people with key leaders. People don't just get somewhere without a leader. God installs leaders. He specifically puts pastors in churches. He puts husbands and wives together to get children. He gives mothers to children to specifically lead them and nurture them and provide for them and protect them in very unique and specific ways. And there's a world, and there's an adversary, a ruler of the world that would love to drag all of us in our leadership roles, away from the task that God's specifically given us. That's what we can learn from Nehemiah here. There's teaching here for all of us. The adversary, the devil himself, always goes for the leaders. Because if you can disrupt the leader, you can disrupt the people, once and for all. And you notice here, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem they are not talking to the people at all they're going to one man and if we can just get this one man distracted from the task we will have success and we will be able to breach this city whenever we want because there won't be doors in the walls Nehemiah shows us what Peter wrote some 500 years later 1 Peter five eight. I don't know how many times I've quoted this passage from this pulpit. But Peter exhorts us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's exactly what Nehemiah is facing right now. And it's the very same adversary that Peter's writing about. Peter goes on to say, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And I could put in parentheses, throughout history. You need to understand that the adversaries here are working under the influence of the great adversary, Satan himself. That's who's enticing Nehemiah to come down off the wall and have a meeting. that's the same adversary that comes after you and me. Tempting to draw us, tempting us to be drawn away from the task that God has given us. In our church, with our families, even in our businesses. because we lead businesses for the glory of God, not for ourselves. All of these endeavors are ministries that God has entrusted to us as believers. And there is an adversary saying, hey, 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 come here, we need to talk. Can we just visit for a minute? got something I want to run by you and we need to respond like Nehemiah we need to resist this we need to remain firm in our faith faith in the one who devoured the enemy that's approaching us in the resurrection from the dead yeah we we need to we need to imitate Nehemiah here for sure With our families and in our churches and in our vocations. We've got a lesson here that we need to pay attention to. I want to show you now, we've got these enemies from the outside coming and appealing. We've got Nehemiah playing the, the role of a godly, steadfast leader. And I want to show you that Nehemiah is able to resist this because his refuge is found in God. God is a mighty fortress for Nehemiah. As usual, we see Nehemiah in verse nine nehemiah's only defensive measure is what prayer he doesn't go a, a mount, mount up an army he he resorts to prayer and he says, "But now, O God, strengthen my hands that 's his prayer. Keep me steadfast on this wall, working with my hands, leading these people to accomplish your task for us. I need you to strengthen me. That prayer tells me that he felt the tug and the pull and the temptation of the external opponents, and he needed God to carry him safely through this. If Nehemiah teaches us anything right here, he teaches us that leaders are prayers We need to be steadfastly in prayer. I I think Nehemiah, as I look through the the chapters of this book, I think Nehemiah is perpetually in a state of prayer. (laughs) I, I don't know that Nehemiah ever said amen to a prayer. I think he just left it open and he's constantly praying under his breath. And I think this prayer is under his breath. Sometimes he's praying out loud. But this is a man who constantly is finding his refuge in God who is present In a time of need. So faithful leaders don't believe in their sovereignty. They believe in God's sovereignty. And when they do so, the response is prayer. If you believe in God's sovereignty. You don't believe in God's sovereignty. You're not going to be a person who prays. You're going to talk to yourself. And you're going to manage your circumstances. So when under attack verbally or physically, Nehemiah's greatest defense is God. Psalm 46 is the text that Martin Luther used to write A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let me just read to you verse 1 and verse 11 of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That right there is the key to Nehemiah withstanding these temptations to stop the work that God sent him to Jerusalem to do. Is God that to you? Can you remain steadfast in all of the appeals that this world and the ruler of this world throws at you to be distracted from your primary task that God's given you as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, father, as a child, as a business leader, as a teacher. We could go on and on and on. As a pastor, is God our refuge Is he a mighty fortress that we will stand within, come hell or high water? That's the call here, and Nehemiah shows us this. Well, let's flip the switch now and go to verse 10. Let me show you the second point. The second point this morning is that there was also internal opposition. This is tough to read right here, man. There's internal opposition. We've seen this throughout the saga of rebuilding the temple and the walls around Jerusalem. Starting in verse 10, let's read through 14 now. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said... Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. Key word right there, and sin. So that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Oh, there's an enemy within as well. He's not being invited to the plain of Ono, he's being invited into the temple. Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds like a wise move in this moment. They're coming to kill me. The enemy within here is named Shemaiah, And Noadiah, a prophetess, is also named amongst other unnamed prophets. Shemaiah is likely the son of a priest. That's how he has access to the temple, to go in and hide in the temple. And his message, as I said, is very, very appealing. They are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. It's almost like a song he's chirping at Nehemiah. You need to be fearful. They're even coming after you at night. You can't sleep well. But there's a place for you. It's the temple of God. God's there. He'll he'll be your provider and your protector there. Come on, let's go into the temple. What's wrong with that invitation to the temple? There's something really wrong with that. Nehemiah tells us. He's got two reasons that are ringing in the back of his mind, maybe in the front of his mind, probably in his heart of hearts. He knows there's two reasons problems with what they are saying the first is this should such a man as i run away (laughs) what does that mean i think it's real simple nehemiah understands that a man who is leading god's people does not run from his post To run would be to demoralize the people, the workers, and they needed strong leadership. They've needed it throughout, through famine and economic turmoil and fatigue. They've needed a strong leader. Do you remember, look over in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 6. Nehemiah says after facing this opposition, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together, for the people had a mind To work. They needed that Nehemiah. They needed the Nehemiah of chapter 4 verse 14. Who said, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. They needed that Nehemiah. And they got him. They got him. Nehemiah knew that leaders don't run from the work that God has given. Nehemiah also knew, this is very important, that only the priests are allowed into the temple that Shemaiah is inviting him to run into and hide. Only priests can go in there. In the Old Testament law that Nehemiah is so familiar with, God said that the priests are the only ones that can go into the temple, and if any outsider goes into that temple, he will die. Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah goes into the temple to burn incense. He was struck with leprosy, and he died because God forbid. That a non-priest go into the temple. And so Nehemiah is hearing this Shemaiah prophecy. They're going to come to kill you. And Shemaiah says the remedy to this is you need to go where God said you can't go. That's what he means when he says they enticed me to sin. It would have been a sin for Nehemiah to stand in the temple. Where only the priest could be. This is warfare. From outside and from within. Nehemiah exercises godly discernment in the midst of really frightening circumstances. And not to mention, he is worn down after months of this. But he's still steadfast. The the text says that he understood and saw that God had not sent Shemaiah. How does he know that? God would not send someone to say to me, do opposite of what God's law says. Bang. Discernment kicks in because he's familiar with God's word. He saw through it all that he was being enticed to sin. He saw that Shemaiah was a false prophet. And I want you to know that they've existed throughout history. The Apostle Paul speaks about them in Second. Corinthians chapter 11 he says for such men are false apostles deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond with their deeds Paul faced false apostles. Nehemiah here is facing false prophets. And their end is death. For God said in Deuteronomy 18, 20, If one claims to prophesy in my name and contradicts my will, he shall die. So where did his discernment come from? I think I've already mentioned it. He was not just smart enough. To connect the dots. No, he was faithful enough to read God's law and to understand it. We read just a moment ago before we sang Psalm one nineteen ninety seven 97-104. Let me give you the greatest hits of that passage as it relates to Nehemiah in this moment. I think Nehemiah spoke like this. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. That's Nehemiah right there. I hate the false ways of Shemaiah. I hate the false ways of Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem the Arab. I hate those ways, God. I will not go those ways because I know your testimonies, your precepts, your statutes, your rules. They are sweet to me as honey. They make me wiser than my enemies. And I will say no without wavering to all of these temptations to disobey you. And I will stay On the task that you've given me. Man I have prayed all week that we would all be Nehemiah like that. That's worth standing before you and opening the Bible and preaching. We all need that running through our veins. And we all need to carry that out. In all of the capacities that God has installed us in as leaders of our families and our churches and our businesses. And when we stand like that, we will be opposed. And we need to not resist just like Nehemiah. Well, we see also here that God is His refuge for internal opposition as well. Look at verse 14. (laughs) He prays this. This is another prayer we slide into. He didn't say amen to the last one. He's still going right here. And he says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. According to these things that they did, remember them. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And included in that is Shemaiah. Let's run into the temple together, Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't jaw with his enemies. No, he takes his enemies to God. He talks to God about his enemies. There's wisdom there. He doesn't defend himself. He says, you made that up in your own mind. But he does not then engage in a counter-propaganda assault. He, He prays exactly uh, is it opposite or it's the complementary prayer to what he prayed in 619? 519. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for these people. He prayed that over there. Now at this point, he prays this. Remember Tobiah and Samballot, oh my God, according to these things that they did. He's asking God in both cases to remember. He understands what Paul told us in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He doesn't seek vengeance with his enemies, internal or external. He turns them over to God. And allows the Lord to deliver vengeance. And I'm going to tell you, quick aside here, I won't preach this sermon, but that vengeance will ever be de- will either be dealt with on the cross of Christ on those people's behalfs, and they can be forgiven for this, or they will bear the vengeance themselves. But vengeance will be delivered on the sins of these enemies. Okay. So there's a history lesson again. We, we again have come to the Old Testament. This is not allegory. These are not fables. This is true history that happened with real human beings. And God inspired Nehemiah to put them in a journal and Ezra to write them into these books. And he has given us this historical record for a reason. I'm going to borrow a term from last Sunday's sermon. Something greater than Nehemiah is here. We have this history so that we can see closer our Christ. Who is greater than Nehemiah and walked the same trail. But to a greater extreme. 500 years later. Nehemiah's experience points us to the ultimate supremacy of the person and the work of Jesus our Christ. I don't want you to miss it. Jesus Christ, like Nehemiah, had external opponents who wanted to draw him away from his work on a cross, not a wall, but on a cross. Christ was severely tempted by the enemy in an effort to ruin his mission for God. In Luke 4 1, we see that Jesus, he's just been baptized, he's been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he returns from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the opponent, the devil. Satan tempted him three times in the wilderness. You can look it up in Luke 4. Matthew's got a version as well. And on three times, Jesus Christ refutes him with the commands of God, namely from Deuteronomy. He did Psalm 119, 97 through 104. I know your truths. I am wiser than my enemy, Father. He tempts me. I will respond to him with your word, your precepts, your rules, your statutes. And I will not come down from my work and be distracted and meet with the devil. You know, if Jesus would have fallen once in these temptations... His ministry would be ruined, and you and I would have no hope for salvation. He was doing a great work, and he couldn't be distracted. But like Nehemiah, Jesus also had internal opposition, and it's ugly. Christ is urged to hide from Herod who was trying to kill him. In Luke 13, 31, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Sounds just like Shemaiah, doesn't it? Man. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He says, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down and meet your request. So just like Shemaiah urging Nehemiah into the temple to escape murder... These Pharisees are urging Jesus to avoid his appointment with the cross and the grave in Jerusalem. Nehemiah goes, if Nehemiah goes into that temple, his mission is ruined. If Jesus Christ leaves Jerusalem and doesn't go to the cross, his mission is ruined. And it was internal Pharisees that said, don't go there, Herod wants to kill you. Both Nehemiah and Jesus had a great work to accomplish. Nehemiah had a great work to do. He says it in verse 3. I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Oh, something greater than Nehemiah is here. Because Jesus Christ, as He hangs on the cross, is mocked by Romans and Jews, soldiers and citizens. Mark tells us, those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Mark tells us even the two thieves hanging on either side mocked him. We know that one turned the corner. They're all saying, save yourself, get off of that cross if you're the Son of God. And Jesus Christ said, I've got an important work to do. No. No to Satan in the wilderness, I will not meet and fall into temptation. No to the Pharisees, I will not avoid my cross, God has appointed that work for me. No to these people looking on, I will not come down off of this cross. Because I have to finish my work. You, you hear Jesus? He, he said in Matthew 25, "This is in the garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts the ear of a soldier off, and Jesus says, "Help you, Peter, stop. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. I must do what Nehemiah pointed to. Something greater than is here. You hear him? I am doing a great work, Peter. I'm doing a great work, you mockers. I cannot come off of this cross. That would be the worst thing I could ever, ever do. Yeah, something greater than Nehemiah is here. His name is Jesus Christ. And this morning, right here at this table and amongst us, we remembered his broken body and his blood that was shed, shed for us. This morning we remembered that he did not come down from his work. He did not go and hide he played the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This morning we remembered that he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit as he died and finished his work. We remember this morning that he says, it is finished. He didn't say, hey, let's put it on hold for a minute. He stayed the course and it was finished. And that's what we did at this table this morning. We remembered his finished Work. So what do you do with that? First, I urge you this morning to believe in this one that we've remembered at this table. You need this one because there is an adversary bearing down on you and he would love to devour you like a roaring lion. You need the Savior Jesus Christ who devoured that one. By crushing His head in His resurrection glory. So I urge you this morning to believe in this Christ. That we have centered our gathering together around. And for those of us that already believe. We need to imitate, yes Nehemiah, but greater than that Jesus Christ. And we need to finish the course that God has set before us. Without wavering. And the only way we can do that is to be familiar with God's voice. Because the world's voice is very different. Let's pray. Father, we say again this morning in response to your word that something greater than Nehemiah came. He is Jesus Christ, your one and only son. Who came to do the work that you appointed for him in the hour that you appointed it. And through trial and tribulation and temptation to step away from that work, he said, No, out of obedience to you, his Father. And Father, the greatest truth of it all is we here this morning, by hearing this truth proclaimed, we are the beneficiaries Of the faithful steadfast work of the man Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us greater faith as a result of this time this morning. I pray that you would call some that do not believe to trust Christ for the first time as a result of being here this morning. And I pray in so doing you yourself would be glorified. Amongst the nations. We pray this in the strong name. Of our unwavering Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.